This is CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast from the University of Cambridge, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. Hi, I'm your host, Rob Doubleday. And this week on CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast, we're talking about sustainable finance and investment in green innovation. Throughout this episode, you'll hear from Christian Desiglis, who's Head of Sustainable Finance and Investments at HSBC. He's also Adjunct Professor of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University and a member of the French government's advisory group on climate change. And Christina Peñasco, who's a lecturer in POLIS, the University of Cambridge's Department of Political Science. And she's also an associate researcher at the Bennett Institute for Public Policy. Welcome. Over the past few episodes, we've looked at the economic shock that we're experiencing due to the COVID pandemic and talked about the extent to which that creates an opportunity for a green recovery, a recovery which needs to happen to to address the economic shock, but one that will also meet our commitments to climate change action and also other sustainability issues. Christian, how's the COVID-19 pandemic changed the sustainable finance sector? Yeah, everything has been impacted by the pandemic. In uh, the silver lining, I would say, of of the pandemic has been a a very strong acceleration of some some trends that we were already seeing, but that have been compounded by the pandemic. So one of them is, for instance, on questions related to resilience. How resilient is my business? How resilient is my supply chain? What are the social issues within that the, my my companies that, that are coming to the front? What is the question of, uh, you know, the questions around energy efficiency, sustainability in general of businesses and supply chain. We conducted a a survey uh, where we asked questions about attitude to sustainable finance and sustainable investments to 1,000 companies in the world and 1,000 investors in the world. So large, you know, pension funds, insurance companies. Uh, And we asked them, you know, whether COVID-19 changed their perception to to sustainability issues. And the overwhelming answer is that, yes, it did. The level of of attention was very high already, but it's been definitely uh, reinforced and and, uh, and increased by COVID. To a certain extent, the pandemic is seen a little bit as a foretaste of worse things to come if we don't manage our environment and biodiversity well. The connection between nature and biodiversity loss and, and the pandemic has been made clear. There is this uh, uh, idea that is very widespread, very common that uh, that to you know if we don't deal with our with our climate issues and biodiversity issues, we will have uh, in the future a phenomenon which will be which will be which will be even worse than than, than COVID nineteen. So now is really the time to take those issues much more seriously. So I'd be interested to hear how your background in emerging markets has shaped the way you are thinking about investment in a green recovery. The rate of economic growth, the the way those societies are evolving, the needs in terms of urbanization and generation of power and so on and so forth are such that it's very, very important that sustainable finance and sustainable investments are available 
to emerging markets if we want to abide by the Paris Agreement targets and meet the Paris Agreement targets. Uh, so I think there is a, a very strong connection between the transition to a low-carbon economy and the transition in emerging markets. What role can policymakers play in incentivizing green investment? So we estimate that more or less we need between a trillion five and two trillion dollars of annual investments in order to create the infrastructure which will allow the world to become net zero by 2050. So we we estimate that the investment needs to get to this transition are in the range of 1.5 to 1.8 trillion dollars a year from 2020 until 2050. So it's you know a huge amount of money that has to be channeled every year towards the uh, the transition. Today we channel approximately 5 600 billion dollars. So there is a gap of around you know, one to one point two trillion dollars that needs to be raised. There has been a lot of innovation, uh, like green bonds, for instance, which are facilitating the channeling of, uh, of finance towards uh, green and, and and transition activities. We are seeing banks also making some big commitments, allocate a portion of their. Uh, portfolio to to green so there there is a lot happening already but but we need um, I think we need support from policymakers to to accelerate it and help it uh, standardize so you need a carbon price uh, you need visibility on uh, on the uh, policies which will be accompanying the, the transition to a low-carbon economy. Things like um, you know, the European Union is doing or the UK has been doing to legislate on net zero are very important because it gives you a framework. Uh, it tells you, look, this is what the policy is. These are the type of things that we are going to do to facilitate the transition to net zero. And therefore, for banks and for the, the business, um, it's easy to adjust uh, their their behavior because they know what 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 the path is and what the the policy framework is going to is going to be. The EU has been very good also at uh, defining what they call a taxonomy of activities. So what is green, what is transition, what is not green. That's also quite important to get uh, policymakers and to get regulators to uh, provide a, a clear framework. Central banks and regulators across the world, they are developing what we call stress testing uh, of banks' portfolio to identify and, and see how the uh, climate-related risks are being managed by, by banks to make the, the financial system safer, but also to help uh, banks identify transition risks in their portfolio, physical risks, and uh, and and be 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 safer, uh, but this is hugely important because it changes the way we are looking at at uh, lending, and it forces us to integrate climate risk in in lending and to have conversation with our clients on on transition risk and climate risk, to provide solutions, to provide financing, uh, advisory services for that, and also to to change our risk appetite uh, internally. So you know we see it it will. You know, it will nudge us to look at uh, uh, to look more conservatively at uh, at companies that are not abiding by or don't have specific targets in terms of decarbonization or don't don't uh, uh, abide by uh, the, the Paris Agreement targets. So it changes a little bit the pricing 
uh, of risk and therefore the uh, allocation of, of capital uh, away from the, uh, the dirty brown companies uh, and 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 uh, uh, into the, uh, the the greener uh, the greener ones and the more sustainable ones. So I think all this is creating a, a, a framework which you know will facilitate financing of, of the transition, will facilitate the recovery also, and, and make it make it greener, build back better. Uh, if uh, but we need it, it has to be you know a combination of uh, of policymakers, regulation, financial innovation. Uh, Pressure from students, from uh, from consumers, from customers, also that uh, want to make sure that the company they work with or the, the company they buy products from are more sustainable. How can we finance sustainable infrastructure at scale? One of the main uh, bottlenecks, I would say, um, for the world to become a net zero world uh, is linked to infrastructure assets. So infrastructure is power. Uh, generation, power distribution, uh, its transport, its uh, buildings. Uh, approximately half of world emissions are coming from infrastructure assets in emerging markets, uh, half of them. And emerging markets, because of their developmental needs, uh, will be building approximately as much infrastructure that they have today within the next 20 years. So they will be doubling their stock of infrastructure assets. So those assets, the ones that are existing today and the ones that are going to be built, need to be low carbon. They need to be sustainable. They need to be resilient to climate change, uh, resilient to flooding, resilient to you know hurricanes and, and things like that. So um, it's absolutely essential to embed sustainability in the design, but also in the assets themselves. So to retrofit them, to make them more low carbon and uh, in line with the, the Paris Agreement. If we don't do that, we'll never have a two degree world. It's essential to do that. Um, but it's very difficult because it's difficult to finance infra assets in emerging markets. It's risky, regulatory risk, they are FX risks because emerging currencies can be weak. Uh, there are, you know, development risk, political risks, and so on and so forth. Um, so we, together with the OECD, the IFC, and now, you know, the World Bank, many development banks, institutional investors, governments, uh, rating agencies, NGOs, WWF, uh, things like that. We put together a sort of coalition, which is called Fast Infra, to look for solutions to uh, finance sustainable infrastructure in emerging markets. Uh, so we are developing, we've been working for the last, uh, since so three months now, four months. Uh, we've been working very intensively during the, uh, the summer. Uh, and we are going to be unveiling a, what we call a sustainable infrastructure label. So some kind of label, um, uh, uh, seal, I would say, um, that, will, that will show investors and show the market that an asset is a sustainable asset so that it in integrates criteria in terms of environment, social, governance, resilience, which are uh, such that uh, it can it can get this type of label and having a label is very important because it will help investors it will help private 
companies, institutional investors, banks, to um, get them comfortable that what they are financing or what they are investing in is sustainable. It you know it will be a, a, a credible uh, seal of. Uh, of, uh, of of quality and reliability, exactly like you have uh, green buildings with LEED certified, platinum certified, uh, gold buildings, and so on and so forth. So, so we are creating that, and we are also creating some uh, financial mechanisms which will facilitate the financing of infra assets by the private sector. The private sector is financing very little today. Uh, because of the risk that are involved in uh, in investing in uh, in infra in emerging markets, so we are looking at what we call blended finance mechanisms, or we are looking at uh, ways to uh, create uh, financial mechanisms that will guarantee some of the risk, cover some of the risks, so the private sector can come in. And we need the private sector because the needs in terms of infra investment are absolutely enormous. To uh, um, uh, meet the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and to meet the Paris Agreement Goals. We need much more than the 1.5 to 1.8 trillion that I mentioned before. We need probably twice as much. Uh, so, Because it's not only about climate, it's also about development and, and fulfilling the development goals uh, in, uh, in emerging and developing countries. So thinking about sustainable green recovery and sustainable finance, are there particular things that you'd say policymakers in the global south will or developing world context need to be thinking about at the moment? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really uh, interesting one. So some countries in emerging markets are actually quite at the, the forefront uh, of that. So for instance, <laughs> the ones that are the most vulnerable, uh, I'm thinking small island, for instance, in the Pacific, that are it's an existential threat for them. So they are at the forefront of that. But some very large countries also are making some some pretty ambitious commitments, like like uh, Korea, like um, uh, China. Uh, China recently, you know, committed to uh, um, to reach net zero by 2060, uh, which is pretty remarkable because of. The state of development that they are they are in. So, um, I think you know some some emerging countries are, are are seeing not only an opportunity to to accelerate the commitments, but also an opportunity to become a, a market leader in some of the technologies that are going to be uh, the ones of the, uh, of the of the more sustainable economies. So I'm thinking of batteries. I'm thinking of EV. I'm thinking of energy efficiency. I'm thinking of clean tech. I'm thinking of you know many new new um, uh, sectors and new industry which uh, are going to be critical in the years to come and uh, that are seen by 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 Korea by by China as as as, as having a lot of uh, a lot of potential hydrogen for instance uh, is uh, something that we we need that is uh, underdeveloped at the at the moment but which is an essential component of the transition to a low carbon economy for many industries so i think you know emerging countries like 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 china for instance uh, see the need to accelerate the transition, but also see the opportunity to uh, become a market leader in some of those, uh, uh, the businesses that will thrive in the, uh, in the transition. What is your work on the One Planet Summits and the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Development Finance entailed? And are there lessons which have emerged from those experiences that you'd want others in the policymaking world to learn from? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So look, I think um, no one has, no single institution has all the answers to promote a framework that will bring us a green recovery uh, or <clears throat> promote a framework that will facilitate the transition to a low carbon economy or facilitate the financing of sustainable infrastructure in emerging markets. Not a single institution can do it on their own uh, because there are too many bottlenecks, too many issues, too many complexities. So you need uh, collaboration and you need to create uh, what FastInfi is, this uh, initiative. It's a multi-stakeholder platform. It's a public and private partnership, I would say, between development banks, governments, financial intermediaries, banks, uh, financial investors, uh, insurance companies, uh, NGOs, and uh, rating agencies, and so on and so forth. So together, we can come up with solutions uh, where part of the solution will be brought by development banks, by the public sector, by governments. Part of the solution will be brought by institutional investors, banks, rating agencies, and so on and so forth. So the WEF and the One Planet uh, Summit provide the opportunity to create this type of, uh, of partnership, this type of multi-stakeholder platform. Um, and the Fastin Frawan is, is a product of, uh, I mean, it started as a collaboration under the One Planet uh, initiative. Initiative. And uh, but now it's really you know it's really everybody working together. I'm working with JP Morgan on something. I'm working with BNP Paribas on something else. So there is no you know yes we are competitors in real life, but at the same time we need to work with each other, and we need to together create solutions that are bigger than than us. Uh, and that's that's very exciting. And I think this platform like the WEF. Uh, the One Planet provides exactly that. They provide a, a forum. Sometimes, you know, nothing can come out of those forums. But in other cases, you can really take it as a as an opportunity to to create something big. Christina, I've got a question for you about um, the UK's role in the world. COP twenty six will be in Glasgow this year, and the UK government is committed to taking a leadership role in addressing climate change. Soon we'll be talking to Martin Rees on this podcast, who, who makes the point very clearly that the UK you know, is, is a small emitter and a small consumer, if thinking globally about climate change, but, but the UK definitely punches above its weight in terms of research and innovation. So is it sensible for the UK to think of its one of its real leadership roles in the world in terms of R&D? And if you think that argument is valid, what would be the most effective way for the UK government to, to assume that sort of leadership with respect to R&D? Well, this is a very uh, difficult question, actually. You mentioned about uh, the role of a relatively small country, but still we are one of the biggest economies in the world. And I think from that point of view, we need to lead in this sense. So if we are becoming an R&D leader, probably not, but uh, we, we can do things to improve our economy, generally speaking, and also the climate goals globally. So we need someone to leapfrog. That is for, for sure. And I think the UK is making the effort with all these uh, new targets and standards to, to move towards this, this direction. I know that the government as well is putting a lot of effort in some projects related to development aid in other countries, in India, in Brazil, 
in China, I am participating in one big project funded by BASE, which is called Economics of Energy Innovation and System Transition. And it's supposed to create a policy debate and, and good practices, not only in the UK, but also how policymaking can be done in India and China and, and in Brazil uh, related to these climate goals. So mm. I think we, we are in a position in which we can lead the debate. Could you tell me something about the short-term goals and the long-term goals? Yeah, so the thing is that uh, about taking into account or we don't have to talk about R&D, um, R&D is one of those instruments that can have an impact in a very long term. But we actually need um, policies and policy instruments that handle short-term economic goals, uh, considering the, the situation in which we are uh, living right now, uh, that can balance these trade-offs that we are seeing in, in policy anyway. And R&D is not going to bring that uh, by itself. So policy instruments for the net carbon uh, target for a low carbon transition is to foster everything, environmental, technological, competitiveness, and social outcomes. And R&D is not so good in some of those, or at least the um, evidence is mixed. Because what we see is that, yeah, we uh, foster innovation, we foster competitiveness in some specific uh, type of companies, but from an environmental effectiveness point of view, it's not that good because the effects are seen in a very, very long-term period, and we are running out of time. Uh, we only have 12 years, according to the IPCC, to reduce the, the drastically the emissions uh, if we don't want to see a lot of uh, catastrophic events around, around the world. Christina, so, you know, your research has looked at some questions about, you know, what are likely to be more successful ways for governments to support R&D to decarbonize the economy. So what would you recommend to governments? What, what, what do you think your research is, is pointing to at the moment, Christina? Well, at least at the moment, uh, at the moment, what the literature has told us is that actually the design of R&D uh, funding schemes can help uh, foster film level competitiveness um, above all and beyond uh, the impact on innovation outcomes. We are working in, on, on a research project in which we are analyzing uh, 10 different uh, decarbonization policy instruments. R&D is one of those uh, in seven different outcomes, environmental, technological, and also competitiveness and distributional. And by the time being, what we have seen is that actually, yes, R&D and government R&D funding programs targeting small companies and those mostly in the early stages of development can help attract other funding sources and advance competitiveness. However, um, these results tend to be pretty um, long-term and, and we need alongside these measures other type of instruments that complement um, the time uh, that we are going to spend waiting for, let's say, results from, from R&D. Uh, usually what we see is that um, what research and, and previous uh, research has seen is that if we design R&D grants for small companies in um, different phases, like in different tires, it's much better because you allow to reach a specific goal midterm and then to continue with the program if the company has been successful 
uh, in certain metrics to reach a specific goal that can be put by the by the funding body for sure. In that way, we avoid auditing prog programs and, and these kind of things. Those companies that will be successful at some point will receive private funding, so they don't receive R&D, they won't need R&D public funding anymore. Those ones that have been successful and um, still don't have enough uh, money to continue uh, with the projects can come back to the program and, and, and still receive the R&D funding. And if they fail, you cut the funds before it's too late and there is a very big loss in investment. Well, what research has told us so far as well is that all these R&D grant uh, programs work better at least for small companies when they are accompanied by R&D uh, tax credits as well. So that's an additional instrument to take into consideration. But coming back to my first point, I think it's just a framework for stability. So if we are transparent enough to create the rules of the game and these rules don't change a long time, and if they change, it's because there is a pre-agreement of adaptation depending on the outcomes that the different companies reach, I think that's the quickest way and the probably safest way to uh, increase investment in, in, in the country. And how, how do you think that, I mean, thinking about the United Kingdom, I mean, that then, all, of course, intersects with questions about the scale at which these decisions are going to be taken. Government procurement is one of those policy instruments that can complement R&D and, and can have um, promote uh, innovation and competitiveness in small firms, in local communities, uh, because usually local governments know better uh, what their own communities and, and citizens needs. And we haven't invested that much in green public procurement uh, and the role of governments in that sense and the role they have to supply funds for this government procurement with green requirements is massive. So I could foster uh, as well uh, the UK government to um, work on this side and, and, and actually explore um, as an additional um, element of the policy mix, what government procurement can give us. Are there examples of, of where governments, either nationally or locally, have succeeded in, in developing green procurement policies? There are some examples in Denmark. There are some examples even uh, in Barcelona. All the examples I have are mostly European. Uh, in which they have delivered positive outcomes, mostly related to the reduction of emissions um, derived from transport, for example. So if you just implemented a clean um, uh, supply chain for foods for schools, you are already reducing a lot of um, emissions in that, in, in that case. Um, it's very sector specific. Uh, but it can be designed as well in a way in which the bids are um, win uh, by those that are not only big firms used to buy uh, and, and get um, public contracts, but also small firms. But to take that example of um, decarbonizing the supply chains in, in, for food provision for public institutions, does that necessarily increase the cost? I mean, is, is it a trade-off between carbon intensity and cost? 
it usually there is a trade-off that counteract with the uh, short um, supply chains. So if you this if you uh, design, it's it's more related to the design element than to the uh, instrument itself. So if you design a project in which you are reducing the carbon emissions and at the same time you are reducing the the um, length of the transport, for example, if you are just providing food locally, uh, the cost can increase because you are uh, funding product production in UK instead of bringing from uh, other cheaper countries, but you will reduce the fuel consumption of the transport, for example. So there can be a counterbalance between uh, different costs, but that would be very specific in, uh, the, and depend on the situation and the sector themselves. So you mentioned Denmark and Barcelona. Yes. I mean, are there good evaluations done of, of the effectiveness of, of these procurement policies? Yeah, exactly. There is one uh, program about, in this case, the, the one in Denmark, if I remember properly, it was about friendly lighting. Um, and there was uh, positive results uh, from it with positive evaluations about competitiveness in the companies that that um, came to participate in the bid. And also in terms of environment, uh, if you transform and substitute all the lighting in, it was called in, I think it's the city. Um, from that point of view. And there is a lot of funds uh, from the governments that can be invested in that way because government procurement is there. So it's just making green the procurement that is already existing. Great. Thank you. I mean, Christina, you've you've studied some of these um, policies. Do you think focusing on government R&D is likely to be part of the solution? It's likely to be part of the solution, and it will be part of the solution. But from my point of view, and from what evidence has told us, is not the only piece in the in the puzzle. And we will need other uh, type of instruments as well. The first one is the population and the role of the citizens themselves in involving in this net zero uh, target and understanding what that means. From that point of view. It's very relevant to keep attention not only to the technologies that households can adopt in order to reduce consumption, but also the behavioral aspect that these new technologies involve in houses. And this is something we are seeing in research uh, that actually results after adopting some of these uh, energy efficiency measures last from one year, two years, three years until uh, the payback period ends. And then the households come back to the normal path of consumption. So it's not only about the technology, it's also about teaching people how to use the technology. And the second thing that I would like to highlight is party politics and how the political context can influence how we reach the net zero target and how we need stability. So uh, actually from the past, I did a research as well about the UK uh, innovation incentive related to to energy. And uh, we define the UK system like a holistic and experimental. And one of the things that we saw is that the investments in R&D, as as you have mentioned, has been done, but have uh, fluctuated a lot in different technologies and in different uh, institutions. So maybe what we require in the future is a more established framework 
that gives investors the certainty that the UK is it's on top of this agenda and is really pursuing a net zero carbon, carbon future uh, in the next years. So thank you, Christian. And thank you, Christina. It's great to have spoken to you both today. And thank you for listening. Uh, please join us next week when we're going to be doing something a bit different. Cambridge Zero at the University of Cambridge will be launching a report on green recovery and we'll be hosting a live event with some of the authors of that report. So please join us then. CSAP's Science and Policy podcast is a production of the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. This series is produced in partnership with Cambridge Zero. This episode was hosted by me, Rob Doubleday, and was produced by Kate McNeil. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at CSIPOL or at our website, www.csap.cam.ac.uk. If you have any feedback about this episode or questions you'd like us to address in a future week, please email inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.